Welcome to Ushers to Ashes, a podcast about alternative culture in the 1980s. My name is Glenda Cruz, and in this debut episode, I'll be talking with my Brisbane pal, Peter Chetnikov, about my memories of Perth's alternative music scene. We'll reverse roles in episode two and get Peter's take on what was happening in Brisbane at the same time. So, let's cross the treeless plain to the world's most isolated city in the 1980s. So the 1980s, um, I'm always shocked by the disparity between the images of the 1980s that I see on um, TV shows from the 80s or films from the 80s Mm -hmm. or in books and magazines. They don't tally with my experience of what I remember the 80s looked like. I see films with um, you know women with poodle hair, shoulder mm-hmm, pads, mm-hmm. spandex, um, dayglow colours, absolutely, yeah. and the, the the lip gloss. Yeah. Um, and whoever was making hairspray back in those days mm-hmm. must have been minting it because <laughs> the films, well, gel, right, gel. And actually, when it come to think of it. Um, I was not averse to using product myself. Oh, yeah, of course. I had much more hair in those days. Um, so I'm just wondering about uh, the extent to which that experience tallies with yours because uh, that disconnect is, uh, is quite strange. I remember, you know, the people I was consorting with uh, dressing in um, a lot of retro op shop gear, mm. uh, lots mm-hmm. of sixty style mm-hmm. fashions, suits, etc. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? It's it's the same. Um, it wasn't so much of a statement. I remember. I'm just going to wind back to like the punk years, seventy seven. I was still at school. I was in Townsville, so you weren't really going to get away with um, glued up hair and safety pins in your nose. Uh, I had a leather jacket that I was so pumped my I got my mum to buy from a, a motorbike shop and you could wear it for two hours a year. Um, but that's as far as I went in terms of like the punk uniform, and, which was just kind of, naff. I like the jacket, but but it, it kind of said that you didn't need to affect that kind of look. All you really needed to do was participate. Because I used to go to, because they're like gigs that weren't cabaret bands, we used to call them cover bands in Townsville were um, bands writing original material, very few on the ground. When I got to Brisbane, slightly different, there were more people in what I'll call the uniform, Mohawks by that stage, early 80s, 1981, 80, 81. Um, and people would like leather jackets with badges and things like that, which looked like uh, extras from Great Rock and Roll Swindle. But not many people you'd see at gigs actually looked like that. It's exactly the same as you're talking about. People who'd shop at St. Vincent de Paul. Um, I used to affect, for some reason, because no one else was wearing them, I think. Which is the point, individuality, rather than, you know, joining the, um, the, the Buttrick pattern approach to culture. Um, it was just much more fun to go in to an opt uh, best of all, an unbranded one. And um, my affectation was, uh, like, 60s tuxedos, which had a little, uh, no lapel and collar difference, just this one little satin strip. And um, they were kind of comfortable because they were suits, and they were sort of well made. Um, <clears throat> and they were black. Black was the colour, yeah. no question about that. Um, and uh, I don't think I've really changed my fashion sense uh, since. <laughs> um, which uh, Glenn's wearing a 
black t-shirt under a black flak jacket and black boots and I'm uh, black Aaron Williams and black jeans and a black jumper and a grey for a variety t-shirt. But I've got to say, Peter, um, I do also remember that Perth, Perth was cover band city, no question. Mm. Uh, that was the, if you went to a gig, you would generally, um, if you weren't into the, the so-called alternative music scene, you'd be going to these big beer barns to see cover bands. But I also remember being aware of different uniforms on the street. Mm. So there were rockabillies. Uh, Perth had a huge influx of English migrants who um, introduced the whole skinhead look uh. and ethos, uh, and it kind of like blended that scene blended a little bit with the punk scene. So often yeah, going to punk gigs were very well for someone like me yeah. with brown skin. Uh, you had to be very very careful. Um, so they took they didn't just take the look and maybe the the reggae and the scar they took the. The uh, ethos. They took the ethos. They, they took, took the violence. They took the racism, and that was an element uh, in in the scene. Today, we're really talking about our respective yeah. tribes. Which, but it's what you saw. Yeah, yeah, and for want of a better term, um, I, I guess we're referring to the so-called alternative music scene, mm-hmm. which, for me, as I recall, it was characterised by bands that um, wrote their own material. Uh, and adopted that punk ethos, you know. So we were just we just missed the sort of punk era, as you say. You were what, probably like fourteen or fifteen at the in seventy seven, yeah. Yeah. So I remember. I mean, I never saw this band, but there were bands like um, uh, the Victims, mm. the Cheap Nasties, who started in Perth, I think, in the late seventies. <laughs> subculture, dressed in black, interested in people um, producing original material. That was, you know, the bottom line. Um, but alongside that, you know, there was a really vibrant R&B scene, mm-hmm. people playing like, there was a guy called Paul Cumming, I think, um, who's now sadly passed away, an incredible guitarist, right. incredible singer, and he straddled both of his Someone's spoon full of water Someone's spoon full of gold Berlin's spoon of your precious love Satisfy my soul My favourite band from the era was the Triffids yeah. Quite well known They weren't on my radar till quite late The first time I saw them They were very impressive And so I missed their early gigs, which by all accounts were pretty shambolic affairs. Mm. Um, 
they formed. Yeah. Uh, so they formed, I think, in 1978. When you interacted, though. Oh, no. when, when did I first see them, mm. you mean? Uh, it would have been like 82, 83. Okay. Yeah. And I'll just backtrack for okay. my benefit. So they weren't on your radar. Who was? And a name? Shake. German humour. The list goes on and on. There were heaps so, of bands. On a scale of um, like performance art to corded songs, mm-hmm. where would you put these bands? Yeah, look, it, it was a bit like the downtown scene in New York in the sense that it wasn't just music. It mm. was a lot of people that were studying fine art at, at um, WAIT, the West Australian Institute yeah. of Technology. They were painters and a lot of those guys yes. were also in bands. Um, so... It was interesting. It was you've got to really talk about a culture, I guess. It wasn't mm-hmm. just music. There okay. was a lot of other things happening. There was theatre. There were lots of installations. Um, it was a very vibrant scene. Um, and when I look back on it, I've got to say that uh, I really treasure that period in my life because mm-hmm. I managed to participate in a whole series of activities. Which, had I been um, in Melbourne or Sydney, I doubt I would have got a foot through the door. So okay. I managed to get on, um, you know, community radio or university radio. Uh-huh. And I was involved in sort of university and fringe theatre and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, it was more than music. Mm-hmm. And some, some of the bands were very, very arty, self-consciously arty. Um, there Boys was, and drones. and uh, Yes. So and A were the classic, okay. um, you know, they used drum machines. <coughs> Um, so, you know, the weapons of choice back then were uh, things like the Jupiter 8, uh, uh-huh. the DX7, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, maybe before that, people were sort of like playing with like um, monophonic uh, yeah, synths. Oh, and there was this sort of distinction, I think, people used to call some of the more guitar-based bands rockist. That's it. That's the word we... That I'm going to be... You're going to be... Coming up against that with uh, with my account as well. Yeah, so there was that sort of divide. But really, I, I didn't make any judgment. I mean, I always was drawn to guitar-based music. Uh, and But that didn't mean that I didn't enjoy and go along to gigs by these other bands. It was yeah. a very diverse scene. There's a book called Way Out West mm. uh, that's compiled by a guy called um, George... 
uh, Matskov, which looks at the WA scene from 76 to 89. And when you flick through the book, uh, what becomes apparent very quickly is the sheer number and diversity of bands that were in that independent scene in Western mm. Australia mm. or in Perth at that yeah. particular mm. time. So uh, a lot of them were kind of guitar based. Um, you know, listening to the scientists first album is quite incredible. The so-called pink album, mm -hmm. um, which is very poppy, very guitar uh, oriented in that sort of like sixties sense. Uh, from what I understand, I think the lyrics for that album were written by James Baker, the drummer, um, Kim Salmon, wrote the music and he was the lead singer. Mm -hmm. But James's concept for the Pink Album was that every song had to be about a girl, mm -hmm. or had to have a girl's name in it, or something like that. that stuff happening the scientists actually transformed quite markedly and they By got the into sounds. this very <laughs> uh you know the 
credited or Kim is credited as being the uh, the inventor of grunge. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the, the, the leap between the Pink Album and then what the scientists subsequently did, I think when they got out of Perth, is quite immense. So there was that kind of grindy, grungy, heavy guitar-based stuff. like the Jugites and the Eurogliders. Yeah, I, see, I, that, that, you've just mentioned them now and they weren't on my mind until you did, but I was aware that both of them were from Perth. Different league entirely, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, where, so, did, where did they play? So uh, they were straight... I hated the Eurogliders. Okay, right. They were really, uh, you know, what we would might what we might describe as a haircut band. All right. uh, very much into synths, very poppy, um, very accomplished technically as musicians. were a little bit more interesting and I used they used to be I went to the West Australian Institute of Technology wait as we called it yeah. and we used to have uh, a wide range of bands that would play play these lunchtime gigs mm-hmm. so you got to see everything including some of the cover bands so they, they would occasionally be invited to play these gigs so I saw uh, the Jugites and uh, you know I think they had was it a profit eight or I don't know. I don't know. One of those, it was, you know, all those sorts of bands were were using synthesizers. um, And that seemed to be a sign that you were um, looking to the future or you were, you know, engaged in something that was cutting edge. You still play guitars? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they represented that wing of the independent scene, which I didn't really, apart from those lunchtime gigs, I certainly never followed those bands.
gigs. But those lunchtime gigs at Wake were fantastic because you got to see, you know, another band from the era I remember seeing were a band called The Boys. I uh, remember, like, they, right. they had that one song, When You're Lonely, which is like a, a power pop, I guess you'd call yeah. it. And then they turned into a heavy metal band, didn't they? Well, when I saw them, to me, they sounded like a heavy metal band. Okay. But the songs were written by a guy called Paul McCarthy, okay. who's still going. Um, he's, uh, I think, teaching songwriting, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. He wasn't actually in The Boys. Uh, he, I, but I remember a band I he was in called The Jackals. Right. Uh, really very accomplished songwriter. Uh, but uh, from what I remember, he didn't look like a rock star. And so... The boys weren't great at writing, so there was a collaboration that happened there. Okay. So I would see—I would never go to see a band like The Boys. Mm-hmm. You know that they were outside of that. I mean, they were doing original material. Um, I think they discovered that you had to write your own stuff if you were going to get out of Perth or if you were going to make it. And uh, I think they started off as a cover band. But yeah. my memory was that um, yeah, they sounded very much like a you know, heavy metal band. I mean, Perth before that sort of, you you know, these punk bands in the 70s, the Mm -hmm. Victims and so forth, um, it was very much a fringe thing. Um, Perth was, you know, it was, um, you know, the first sort of bands I think I I saw by accident as a teenager were these blues bands, sort of blues boogie bands, like playing J.J. Cale covers or Mm -hmm. Eric Clapton, you know, I remember um, uh, cocaine, every oh. blues band, you know, that kind <laughs> of shuffle. Co- it was every just... cover band in the 70s played cocaine. Yeah. It was actually banned in Townsville, by the way. The song right. was banned, was like civic uh, law or whatever. No, but no, there was a band called The Pensioners yeah. who like covered like Stranglers and things like yeah. that and The Clash. Um, and that was like made up of people from under the bridge, I guess. I mean, I didn't hate these bands. I mean, the, the blues bands I saw were incredibly adept, yeah. like, technically. And I got into the blues mm-hmm. quite early. But, um, you know, really, there's only so much you could do um, with that 12-bar boogie format. It was a very West Australian thing, as far as okay. I remember. And it actually, um, it, it wasn't as though it died out. So in the 1980s, there was a really strong uh, R&B blues I scene that was happening. I think it was like some version of it was the default position for bands in Australia from Chain, etc. onwards. Right. Um, which is one of the reasons. Why, that, that's the kind of stuff that you'd like half of Countdown and like 1975 would be right, no, 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 no. Like, not a status quo, but that sort of um, 12 bar, that tradition, that yeah. like blues tradition, but played by um, like almost like scholarly yeah, things, but you'd end up with it just sounded like pub rock to me, which yeah. is why I started listening to the sixties. Yeah, rather because it just sounded better. Yeah, <laughs> but that yeah, I think it was like you got a few uh, more original acts, like uh, for better or for worse, you know, Sherbet or, or Skyhooks. Yeah, uh, who had chops. Yeah, uh, like songwriting chops, and underneath that was this whole sort of underbelly. It's like taking the the, the skins of the walls out and finding all the rats and the mice there they're just going no 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 yeah just drive me nuts yeah um and it's just like if one of those came out i'd have a loo break you know yeah <laughs> it's just, and, and you, uh, hush they were one they were a high profile one yeah that's all they ever did yeah yeah look i wasn't so averse to that and and really my knowledge of music was pretty spare mm. um so i 
was listening to the music that was popular um, that you saw on Countdown. Mm. But once I went to university, things changed. And as I say, those lunchtime gigs were a revelation. Um, and that kind of like opened up a whole new world for me. And that's when I started going to gigs. And I started going to these, uh, to see these so-called alternative bands. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, once that happened, the 80s were a very different proposition mm. for me in terms mm. of um, the way my friends looked, uh, the things we did, the music we listened to and so forth. Um, now the Triffids uh, yeah. started really young and uh, I think they were formed by the drummer Elsie MacDonald and Dave McComb when they were still at school and so they were doing these sort of experimental tapes and they couldn't play very well for a long time. They started writing very soon and they had produced a lot of um, tapes that they'd sell at gigs long before they went anywhere near a recording studio. So they would sell these tapes at gigs. Um, they were, they were, well let's be blunt, they were rich kids and um, I think both, uh, I think Dave McCombs' father was a plastic surgeon, his mother was a scientist, came from, uh, we lived in one of the most salubrious suburbs of Perth, Peppermint Grove. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, there's a book by Bled and Butcher um, called Save What You Can, which is a interesting read. It's basically a biography of Macomb, and it's got okay. a lot of information about his uh, early years. So he started writing songs really young and had written, I think they'd done something like maybe six homemade tapes recorded on a Revox, right. which was a sort of state-of-the-art oh, yeah. um, hi-fi cassette. It's a radio, reel-to-reel. -reel. Oh, cassette. cassette machine, I think. Mm -hmm. oh, no, no, I think, no, you're right. Uh, it was a, a reel-to-reel, -reel. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I think Revox did make cassettes that... Uh, oh, they as, would have had to. Yeah, but it, you're right, it was a reel-to-reel -reel thing. Mm. So they had written lots of songs, okay. and um, oh, okay. it's really interesting listening to those tapes, which are now available. You can actually listen to them, I think, on Apple Music. The uh, Triffids produced a 10 CD kind of retrospective a few years ago, which documented that early period. By the time you get to 10 CDs, you've got a backlog. <laughs> yeah. You, well, no, the 10 CDs like, sort of like uh, comprise of um, live gigs when they oh, were a okay. powerhouse. But the first three or four uh, just document this early period. i 
Okay, so the trailer's plane lineup was that was that a point of consolidation for the band? I mean, was that the same band that started playing in earnest, like uh, crafted songs? Because that's what I get from the album. Yeah, no. Um, so all the, the songs were crafted right from the beginning. Okay. And that's quite an amazing thing. I mean, some of the early ones are a bit kind of uh, naff, silly, uh, the sort of thing you'd expect from teenagers. But mm. the progression in Dave McComb's songwriting um, was incredible. Okay. He just accelerated. He was one of these guys that... Um, <coughs> Sorry. He was one of these guys that just had oodles of talent and intelligence and mm -hmm. charisma and he was determined from a very young age uh, to succeed as a songwriter so I don't know how he was so prolific and how the songs became so compelling at such an early stage in fact some of the songs that um, the Triffids recorded as a professional band uh, were written you know when he was a teenager mm -hmm. which is an incredible achievement but to answer your question no the band went through a number of lineup changes okay. um, what really I think made a huge impact uh, for them was when they got Martin Casey in as the bass player now Martin Casey as you know is the bass player in the Bad Seeds mm. uh, he joined the Bad Seeds once the Triffids broke up bass is a big presence on the album huge yeah. it's, it's melodic it's riffy yeah. It's, yeah. so I remember seeing Martin Casey at one of these um, lunchtime gigs I spoke about playing in a band called A to Z mm. which were a reggae band mm -hmm. and I remember being blown away by the sound of the band I loved reggae yeah. as you know you know there's another uh, there was a had another subculture which um, was sort of un united by smoking pot and listening to <laughs> reggae. Everyone smoked pot in Perth, you know, like okay. you, could, you could see bikies, the people in this independent scene, yeah. reggae heads at certain hotels, which I won't name, right. uh, all kind of doing deals. Right. You know? um, okay. And I think the bikies were the people that were making the money. Okay. Um, so Martin Casey made a huge difference to the sound of the Triffids, I think. So if you listen in to that... In terms of discipline, maybe? Because that's what I'm kind of getting from the recording, the production, the arrangements. You don't get away from the bass being really bedrock um, and very, very, so very important to the way the, the songs flow. Yeah. The, you know, the interesting thing, though, is that I was always uh, impressed by the, the early singles that the Triffids did. And that's the music I first heard mm -hmm. before Casey joined the band. And the bass was always a presence. Okay. It's become apparent to me um, many, many years later that one of the things that the Triffids were really good at was arranging songs and arranging parts. So they weren't just writing chord progressions and sort of thrashing away. Um, to my ear, it sounds like they were reverse engineering pop songs okay. and they had this sensibility um, that is very apparent on these recordings, that the bass had a specific role, um, that it wasn't just keeping time. Mm. Um, there were distinct bass lines from a very early point. Okay. And um, there's nothing wrong at all with uh, their previous, um, you know, they, I think they had Will Akers and some other people whose names I can't remember. They play, they were good players. Nothing happens here, nothing gets done, but you get to 
path We drink all day The roads are in disrepair I don't know when there haven't been that way They've always been that way a sense of arrangement for performance or recording. Now a lot of bands, particularly guitar bands, start out when it, whether it's maybe it's different now, but in 1981 or so, uh, you, you put the chords together, this, you had the lyrics, someone did that and everybody else just thrashed. Well from thrash you could wind it back to like gently play, but no arrangements as such. The arrangements by default. But you're talking about someone who's, who's thinking maybe not Brian Wilson level, but they're thinking, I want this song to have this this sound, this um, progression. I don't mean chord progression. I mean the like the dramatic progression of the the statement. Absolutely, you, know, you are absolutely right. And Dave McComb uh, used to make extensive notes about how oh, okay. he wanted songs recorded. So he was uh, a prolific writer. He, he wrote poetry, he kept a journal, and he went into the recording studio very well prepared. He knew exactly what he wanted. He would tell the band members to listen to certain records. Um, there was a lot of planning. Um, the sound didn't okay. just sort of uh, come out of nowhere. Uh, and they played a lot of gigs. And, oh, you know, okay. it's that phenomena of what is it, the 10,000 hours or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So he wrote a lot of songs um, in a very short period of time, and the Triffids just gigged and gigged and gigged. If you look at the documentary about Born Sandy Devotional, mm -hmm. which is their big album, which mm -hmm. we're not going to talk about today, yeah. Steve Kilby talks about how he dismissed the Triffids because he was threatened by the fact that he'd heard there was this younger band from Western Australia who had you know, a hundred songs. Um, and he was intimidated by that. <laughs> and he should have been <laughs> because uh, they did have that many songs and they were really uh, doing something, um, I think, quite distinctive. But when I was listening to the CD that comes with Way Out West, the book that I was talking about, I was so impressed by the standard of songwriting in the scene in general. Okay. You know, so the Triffids weren't... You know, there were bands like Chad's Tree. Oh, um, yes, my, my friend of mine uh, loves Chad's Tree. They were excellent. 
been like a brother to me. Oh, you can hear him tearing perfect strips of newspaper up there. Well, that's outside your door, shuffling a dice in his hand, holding a crumbled piece of paper of yours. On that there is written all that he's wanted to know. So they were the Snarsky brothers, and okay. they went on, yeah. um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, Rob Snarsky ended up playing with Dave McComb in the Black Eyed Susans. Uh, yes, of course, yes. And um, his brother, uh, who was the, um, the, the the driving force between uh, behind Chad's tree, ended up forming a band called uh, The Jackson Code. Um, which were they had a couple of excellent albums that they released, I think, in the early '90s. So um, yeah, the 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 standard of music really impressed me. And uh, this is the point of uh, of departure, and I'll, I'll um, and we'll deal with it when I go on a bit more about Brisbane. But uh, that culture wasn't there in Brisbane. There was no idea of musicianship in an academic sense being important. In fact, there was, that, there was a certain amount of contempt for that. Um, get to the reasons why later, but that is a really a major and distinct difference between what you're describing and what I experienced. Although I've got to say that, the, you know, before 
I have only ever seen the Triffids as a, a powerhouse. By the time I got to see them, um, they were awesome. Mm. But people who had followed their career from when they first started playing gigs around Perth, and I think they had a residency at a place called the Stone Crow, will tell you that they were shambolic. Okay. And they were kind of proud of it too. All right. You know, so, well, that was the ethos. Wasn't yeah, it? it was very much. They didn't really, you know, Dave couldn't really sing in tune. They, it, and, you know, the interesting thing, though, is that um, those early tapes show that there was always ambition and they were always trying to get better, even if they were being, you know, their the sort of public image was like, oh, we don't give a fuck. Okay. They kind of did, I think, I suspect, you know, because mm. you couldn't do the, the recordings that they did. You know, the recordings are loose, you know, mm. clearly teenagers mm. playing, they sound like a high school band. Mm-hmm. But even so, on those early recordings, yeah. after, you know, maybe a year of playing together, they start to kind of like get quite good. But you're right, like the, the bands I saw in Perth that were part of that scene, uh, they could all play. Yeah. I mean, even bands, so there was a band called German Humor, always loved the title. Of and course. I could tell <laughs> that the guitar player was not technically great, but the ideas and the lyrics and the atmosphere, spot on. It was yeah. a great scene. I mean, yeah. um, I just remember seeing band after band that I was just blown away by. Mm-hmm. And um, it's great that this book has come out and it comes with the CD of MP3s, which demonstrate the wide range of sounds. You know, there was a band called Martha's Vineyard, which I, yeah. I really liked as well. Um, and the lead singer was a woman called Peggy Van Zarm. Sort of Joni Mitchellish, you know. So there was um, uh, that aspect to the scene as well.
but uh, the bass guitar was something that really like shines through on a lot of the recordings mm-hmm. you know people sort of playing funky fat that was in that, that sort of like uh, slap sounding yeah if not actual slap playing um, that sort of very that sort of almost banjo like funkiness as you say yeah that, that was a that really emerged it was I as far as I'm concerned it was like a part of the anti-rockist thing yeah. to make it sound a little bit more disco because disco um, got it didn't have a revival you wouldn't call it that because of the scene you're talking about it had was like tiny but within that scene it was kind of a part of cultural protest to be more favorable to disco yeah than um, than any kind of rock that was going remember the clash the, all the sort of the dubby stuff and magnificent seven that song yeah uh, which is I think a chic riff or something like that the bass riff something like that I'm not sure um, we're talking about the Triffids and we're talking about your experience of seeing them. So tell me about a gig. What the kind of gig you... What was it like going to see the Triffids in fact? Um, first of all, you got the overwhelming sense that this was a very particular subculture. You know, the, um, the, and the, the crowd... They used to attract huge crowds uh, by the time I started seeing them. I mean, huge for Perth anyway. Pubs? Yeah. So they, I first saw them in places like the Shaftesbury Hotel, mm-hmm. uh, which was a relatively small place, probably only a few hundred people. Okay. But also venues like uh, the Red Parrot, which was the center of the kind of alternative scene. In a way, it was a club that used to have bands as well. And they'd have big international acts there I, I saw the violent femmes there and okay. various other bands um but a triffids gig was for me always mesmerizing i always thought macomb had a certain theatrical presence very strong theatrical charismatic frontman, and um their sound was always just awesome just you know they were incredibly tight um although they weren't averse to having like theme nights. They would have covers nights um, and they were capable of um, playing two, three hours worth of just cover tunes if they wanted to, you know, so they could function as a bar band, Uh uh, as Mm -hmm. entertainers, yet they had this other side to them, which developed. So when I first started seeing them, you know, they they were still doing like um, covers by the Velvet Underground interspersed with their own stuff. The first thing was that it was slightly different uh, for me, like going into that world where clearly these were people from a different part of town, dressed in black, very genial crowd. Yeah. Uh, as they grew, it became a, a little bit different, I think. Mm. They started bit clicky? To... Bit so, clicky? clicky. Uh, yeah, I, I think so, but not because the band uh, intentionally... I mean, no more clicky than the independent scene generally sure so you know people who would see you know the other bands i mentioned uh, like chad's tree or andanay or whoever generally were triffids fans as well i know very few people of my vintage uh who were into independent music who weren't fans of the triffids so um somewhere along the line though they, they went from being a band with really um good tunes you know i was always attracted to just how melodic the songs were and how powerful they sounded as a live act and then they morphed into something else where mccomb adopted the persona of i I think bled and butcher sort of refers to it as a 
you know, possessed preacher. You know, <laughs> he was um, into American Gothic literature, I think. Oh, okay. and, um, like someone else we know. <laughs> yeah, uh, very much. Well, actually, I think it was um, the birthday party yeah. that had a huge influence on that change. So when Lacombe okay. heard the birthday party for the same time, okay. at, at least this is the kind of standard historical line that I'm aware of, um, that he took a lot of inspiration from that. But to my mind, yeah. always did it better than Nick Cave. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, he, if he'd seen them live, that would have cemented it, I think, because yeah. I'm not sure if you, you saw the birthday party live, but I did a couple of times. Yeah, I did, yeah. And it was extraordinary. Yeah, just the the presence of it. Yeah. You wouldn't even remember the music. Yeah. I mean, the, the entire um, force. Of yeah, it. and once again, the bass of the the birthday party. Oh, just the, yeah. And they were mm. so loud, and mm. Nick Cave just throwing himself around yeah. the stage, and there was a sort of sense of menace and violence. Uh, there was something other. It was a very theatrical show. Yeah. You know, there was. I'll, I'll just put one thing in. Uh, there's a, a venue in Brisbane called the New York Hotel. It had. Um, uh, a very huge high-ceilinged main uh, area for bands and they were on a, a huge riser, a huge stage like, a, a, like, I don't know, maybe three metres. It was enormous. You couldn't not see them. And there was uh, around the walls, there was a mezzanine. So you could actually even like be above the band. And a lot of people did, uh, went there. Like There was table service, so you could, your drinks came to you. So people were sitting on the stage within reach of Nick Cave. And this is one of those great moments of history that you, you, you kind of looked away for. Literally, that happened to me. So and it was King Inc., which has that express yourself yeah. thing. And he just ran with his, like, the SM58 in his mouth and just, like, screaming into it, those words, express yourself, and picked up, I think it was a girl from one of the tables who just, like, yeah, froze. And, uh, and then he just like put her down. It wasn't violent, really, apart from that one thing. But she was as into it as anything else, anyone else. Because the, it wasn't, it was only theatrically violent. But the force of a theatricality was immense. Got this monkey on my back. I cannot even mention its name. I clambered aboard sometime back. On the road to my LLMA. My sweetheart, she said, was a poison Turning my blood into brine But I knew for a fact that behind my back It was you on my track Strangled her ghost But it hurts so much Just to love her You hurt 
table Somehow things just act quite the same But I wish you well And I wish you love And I drink to your health just the same I drink to the names of the ones who have died To be washed away into the rain I remember hot summer nights in smoky pubs and clubs, watching throngs of black-clad bohemians shake, shimmy and sometimes stare in wide-eyed wonder. Most were not very good dancers. Some swayed rhythmically, others jumped up and down on the spot. Too many jabbered incessantly and incoherently, oblivious. I remember a petite girl Straight black hair, bobbed. Little black dress, strapless. Right leg in, left leg out. Right leg in and shake it all about. Daintily. I stand amongst friends, we sing along. We're caught in a trap, we can't get out. We're drunk and appallingly off key. Graham takes large sips from his hip flask. He whispers something in his girlfriend's ear. I fiddle with my Sony Walkman, which records the racket for... What? Unsolicited requests. Farmers never visit nightclubs. Butterfly! No chance. Instead, a furious sermon from the pulpit. Then an atmospheric missive from a lonely place. Finally, a twee ditty, and it's all over. We spill into the heat, reeking of smoke and sweat. We go in search of falafel rolls. This episode played in chronological order the following tracks. Hit and Run by Cheap Nasties, Spoonful by Paul Cumming, Taken as Gospel by Andane, Cabbage Hat by Scant Regard, Frantic Romantic and We Had Love by The Scientists, Heaven by The Eurogliders, In Your Car by The Jugites, Indiscreet Music by Dalsey, that's Dave McComb and Alzie McDonald, before The Triffids began, A Place in the Sun and Spanish Blue by The Triffids, 
A Stroller in the Attic by Chad's Tree, Infatuation by Martha's Vineyard, and finally, Monkey on My Back by The Triffids. This episode was recorded and produced by Glenn DeCruz and Peter Chetnikoff and edited by Glenn DeCruz. We hope you join us for Peter's take on the Brisbane scene in episode two.